welcome to The Dead Lady Show podcast. I'm Susan Stone. The Dead Lady Show celebrates forgotten and also possibly rather famous women who achieved amazing things against all odds while they were alive. The show is recorded in front of a delightful audience at Berlin's Akud, and on the podcast we bring you a special selection of talks from these events. We are fresh off a transatlantic Dead Lady Show evening with events practically concurrently, minus a few time zones, here in Berlin and also in New York, which you'll hear excerpts from soon in other upcoming shows. And I'm pleased to welcome to the cozy ladyphonic home studio why it's none other than Dead Lady Show co-founder, Katie Darbyshire. Hello, Katie. Hello, Susan. It's lovely in our little grotto here. <laughs> It's, it's really cozy and snug. I feel like I'm playing tense and I'm seven years old. That sounds so glamorous. Um, yes, it is, it is cozy and hopefully relatively soundproof, and uh, we do it all for you. Katie, we have a really great talk, of course, here on the show today. Tell us who we've got on whom. We have our beloved co-host and co-founder, Florian Dousens, talking about Josephine Baker. And uh, uh, so we don't want to give away too much because um, probably a lot of us know uh, Josephine Baker from her work as a dancer and, and a musician and an icon, basically. And I hope there's, that um, you all learn as much as we did from Florian's talk. Totally. I never knew any of those things. But can I just say she did invent, according to Florian, the jazz hands. And according to my dance te teacher, she invented twerking. Oh, that's quite a legend. And um, there are a lot of things high and low that Josephine did. Uh, this is one of my favorite talks, I think. I love all of our ladies. But this one is a wild ride uh, with some rather uncomfortable history, of course, which is often the case in the lives of our complex dead ladies. Also on stage, which uh, we saw at the time, there are props, there's dancing, and um, the talk is, shall we say, joyfully sweary. <laughs> <laughs> So if you have delicate ears, consider yourself warned. Um, oh, and if you're from the great state of Missouri or Missouri, apologies, we know it's St. Louis, not St. Louis, as Florian says. I didn't know that. In his talk. Well, I did. I do now. Yes. Okay. So <laughs> apologies in advance. Don't write us. I mean, do write us, but not about that. <laughs> okay. Here we go. There is there's someone who brought banana accessories today there they are you know fly those bananas high as you know the banana skirt is to josephine baker as the fruit salad headdress is to carmen miranda um and the idea for the bananas came from jean cocteau uh, at least that's what josephine said um and jean cocteau said to josephine on you it will look very dressy Seen with our 21st century glasses, however, these early, am I blocking all the nudity? Oh no, okay. Um, these early performances of Josephine's are very problematic. Um, not, for not only did she often perform in blackface, apologies, um, but she also played and was cast in the role of a clownish cross-eyed primitive. Her early reviews confirm this image, describing her as a boxing kangaroo. Um, going on to say, is this a man? Is this a woman? 
Her lips are painted black. Her skin is the color of a banana. Her hair, already short, is stuck to her head as if made of caviar. In the early days, it was actually made of paper because she'd burned off all her hair with uh, leaving hair straightening product in way too long. Her voice is high-pitched. She shakes continually, and her body slithers like a snake. Is she horrible? Is she ravishing? Is she black? Nobody knows for sure. You get an idea of why of all the ladies I've had the pleasure of researching and presenting over the past years, um, Josephine has been the trickiest one. It doesn't help that both her, her ex-husband, and various hangers-on have churned out countless books about her. Uh, she herself uh, published five memoirs, um, all of which are as sweet and sincere as they are filled with far-fetched inventions and tragic omissions. Um, here's a brief excerpt from one of them, and I lapse into a terrible southern accent. Um, Great Aunt Elvira's skin was the color of copper, and she wore her coal-black hair in two long braids. Aunt Elvira was Indian. I'd been told that the ways of her people dated back thousands of years. She'd spent most of her time weaving striped shawls, but occasionally she would order us out of the house while she danced the wild tribal dances of her Cherokee ancestors, her moccasined feet thumping the floor. Other times she sat cross-legged on her straw mat, smoking quietly. According to all other sources, none of this is true. <laughs> um, Josephine's real story starts in St. Louis on June 3rd, 1906, when little Frida Josephine McDonald was born. Elvira, her grandmother, had been a slave. Her mother, Carrie, had been the first in the family to read and write. Carrie loved to dance and flirt, and she'd been working as a laundress um, and, and living at home until her parents found out that she was pregnant and then they kicked her out of the house. Who exactly Josephine's father was is unknown, though she herself always believed him to have been white. Josephine, or rather Tumpy, as she was called, after her own mispronunciation of Humpty Dumpty, grew up a vivacious child. At seven, she was sent out to be a domestic, but the employer's abuse got to be so bad that her mother took her back in and sent her to school. Any chance she got, however, she'd go to the local black theater, the Booker T. Washington, um, where she'd especially enjoyed the animal acts and the drag queens. Female impersonators, they were called at the time. You remember. Um, in 1916, age 10, her stage dreams made her skip school so often that she spent 67 days of the year in school. Three years later, at age 13, that was 30 days. Um, she also got married for the first time to a steel worker called Willie Wells, who was maybe 25, maybe 30. Nobody realized the marriage wasn't legal. She was too young. But anyway, two weeks later, they got into a fight. She cut open his head with a broken beer bottle, and he never came back. At the theater, Josephine had been taken under the wing of the blues singer Clara Smith, um, the so-called queen of the moaners. Aside from letting Josephine massage her feet, Clara also got her first gig, playing an angel careening down onto the stage from the rafters. Soon, Josephine snuck off with the troupe to Philadelphia, where at 15, she married one Billy Baker. And that's, so that's when she became Josephine Baker. Though Billy didn't stick either, um, Josephine's career really took off. She joined the chorus line of Shuffle Along, which was the pioneering first all-black review. A little into her tenure, however, she broke the line, so she, they, were, they were doing that thing. 
and um, that's the only dancing I'm doing today. Uh, so she broke. I know. You don't want to see me, Charleston. It's not. It's not pretty. Um, and so she broke the line. She started clowning and mugging and crossing her eyes. Immediately, she was fired by the stage manager, but she was hired back just as quickly because, as I quote, the crackers loved it. Um, living in Harlem uh, and performing on Broadway, Josephine has had critics searching the program for her name, but since she was a chorus girl, she wasn't in the program. Um, but soon this real jazz baby, as they called her, would get her own billing. She was scouted to headline a brand new production in Paris where she would be paid $250 a week, which comes out to like seven or 15K today. It was a wild decision and she regretted it almost instantly. Like what was she gonna do in Paris? She didn't speak French, she like, could barely write. Uh, but by that time she was on an ocean liner bound for Europe. And here she is arriving in Paris. And the exciting part was, because there were no Jim Crow laws or whatever, she could just stay in a regular hotel and she would even have her own bathroom. And then there was a bidet, which was just, anyway. Um, <laughs> we've all had that moment. Uh, so I'm gonna show you the poster for the show that she was in, which the poster is, um, is more famous than the show. This was the show that brought the Charleston to a whole new audience. She said, she described it uh, like this. It's a way of dancing with your hips to bring out the buttocks and shake your hands. They basically invented the jazz hands. Um, we hide the buttocks too much. They exist. I don't see what reproach should be offered them. <laughs> Though the French were at first slightly disappointed at the light skin tones of the dancers, uh, <laughs> because they'd been cast in America, and in America the custom was, of course, to hire the uh, lightest colored dancers. A crowd still flocked to the theater. Josephine, meanwhile, never able to save money, started working multiple jobs, appearing at nightclubs after the review, dancing seemingly nonstop. The company toured all over Europe during the mid-1920s. Here she is in Holland, wearing our national dress. <laughs> um, here she is all powdered up in Vienna. Yeah, she was having a great time. Uh, and here is a series of pictures from a German magazine which was previewing her um, oncoming engagement in Berlin. Yeah. And um, her stint at the Nelson here was picketed by the brown shirts, of course, who called her subhuman and immoral, to which she responded, I'm not immoral, I'm natural. And uh, are you familiar with, with uh, Count Harry Kessler, Graf Kessler? So here is his description of her at a party in Berlin around 2 a.m. in 1926 when she was 19. Ms. Baker was dancing a solo with brilliant artistic mimicry and purity of style, like an ancient Egyptian or other archaic figure performing an intricate series of movements without ever losing the basic pattern. Apparently she does this for hours on end, without tiring and continually inventing new figures, like a child, a happy child at play, a bewitching creature, but almost quite unerotic. Watching her inspires as little sexual ins excitement as does the sight of a beautiful beast of prey. Um, <laughs> Berlin really lives up to its image here with Josephine being given lots of Coke, um, cocaine, Coca-Cola was here too, I guess? Uh, and being f found on a couch at 3 a.m. eating one Bockwurst after another. This is an actual quote. 
Though she was briefly tempted to stay and study with Max Reinhardt, the Folie Bergère snapped her up and that was that. She moved into a marble palace on the Champs-Élysées, opened a nightclub of her own called Chez Josephine, and she even had one in Berlin. Um, she would stay until, like, until the place, I, no, it never closed, but she would stay until most of the people had left and then she would do the dishes. This is the story, at least. At that point, she started to dominate all media. Um, so in 1926, actual Josephine dolls were on every child's Christmas list. They, they prob they, this is an actual doll, but um, they probably looked more like, like the one she's holding there. It looks pretty white. Um, she endorsed a hair product called Baker Fix that would earn her more money than her music. She got a pet cheetah called Chiquita, who she performed with and took to the movies. He really liked the jungle pictures. Um, she married someone pretending to be an Italian count, um, slept with everyone, men and women, the men as long as they were well endowed. When criticized about this, Josephine, it isn't what you have, it's how you use it. She responded, if you don't have it, you can't use it. Um, she also starred in several very silly movies in which she got naked, sang, danced, and sacrificed herself for a white man. Yet it has to be said, she'd also changed quite radically compared to the cross-eyed caricature she'd played in her early years. Here she is in one of her movies from 1935, Princess Tam Tam, being fucking luminous despite some terrible editing. In Europe, she was a star, but when she tried to reconquer the U.S., critics complained she had squandered her talent to become a mere celebrity. One quote, Miss Baker has refined her art until there is nothing left of it. That might be Dorothy Barker. I mean, sounds like Dorothy Barker. <laughs> Time magazine, meanwhile, wrote, in sex appeal to jaded Europeans of the jazz-loving type, a Negro wench always has had a head start. But to Manhattan theater goers last week, she was just a slightly buck-toothed young Negro woman whose figure might be matched in any nightclub show and whose dancing and singing might be topped almost anywhere outside of Paris. Yeah, harsh. Um, so uh, Paris was to be her home. With her and Edith Piaf ruling the stage, they would like switch out, people would come for one, and then the other would show up and they would go, what? And then they would love it, um, obviously. Um, Josephine marries again a Jewish Frenchman. Uh, this time she becomes French in the process, uh, at least if we disregard her only legal marriage to Billy Baker, from whom she would never actually obtain a divorce. She married quite a few times after this. By 1939, she'd broken things off with her Frenchman, and she and Maurice Chevalier were entertaining the French troops on the Maginot Line. Josephine herself was sought out by the military intelligence service to become what was called a honorable correspondent. Um, she was supposed to report back from what she saw and experienced from her travels. When she was told that the Germans were about to take Paris, she emptied out her villa outside the city, sending her treasures south, while she, carrying a cage of parakeets, naturellement, um, got a lift <laughs> from a young man driving by. Both Josephine and her things made it down to the Dordogne, where she rented a castle she called Les Milandes, 
This was to be the base of her operations as a spy for the French. Actually true. Carrying messages across the continent scribbled in invisible ink on her sheet music. Um, or pinned to her body underneath her, no not, I guess pinned to the inside of her underwear. I mean, who would dare to search Josephine Baker, right? <laughs> no one. Um, from Lisbon, she eventually made it to North Africa with her 28 pieces of luggage. The spy did not travel very light. Ending up in Morocco, where she helped Jewish refugees get passports. Um, she also started a very dangerous fertility treatment that would lead to severe peritonitis and a series of operations. Yet even confined to a hospital, her star power proved, provided perfect cover for diplomats to visit and exchange secret information by her bedside. Here's a longish quote from an article by the great Langston Hughes from December 1942, in which he describes a meeting he once had with Josephine Baker in her dressing room during intermission. Miss Baker received me lying on a chaise lounge in the floating veils of her gown as queen of a desert harem. She spoke to me only in French. I, too, only spoke French as best I could. But once, when I did not understand, she was telling me about her plane and how well she had learned to fly. She switched to English, but with a decidedly French accent. She said, I tell you how I fly the plane. Now I learn the loop, the loop. I love it. This is my German-French accent. <laughs> then she went back into French again. He continues, St. Louis to Broadway to Paris, poverty to stardom, segregation to the adoration of the European world, such was the path of Josephine Baker. Then came Hitler. The Nazis swept over Europe, Paris fell, patterns of race hatred as violent as Mississippi became official policy. Her planes, her jewels, her chateau, her wealth were confiscated by the Nazis. A few weeks ago, according to the papers, she died in Casablanca. Josephine Baker, child of charm, dusky Cinderella girl, ambassadress of beauty from Negro America to the world, buried now on foreign soil, as much a victim of Hitler as the soldiers who fall today in Africa fighting his armies. The Aryans drove Josephine away from her beloved Europe. At her death, she was again just a little colored girl from St. Louis who didn't rate in fascist Europe." End quote. Yet, this too turned out to be not quite true, as Josephine herself told the press a few weeks later. <laughs> There's been a slight error. I'm much too busy to die. <laughs> sure enough, before long, she was touring the North African Allied Forces bases with the likes of Vivian Lee and Noel Coward, singing, dancing, and lecturing to the black troops particularly. She said, I want you to look at me as your mother, your sister, your sweetheart. You're going around exposing yourself to these diseased girls, like she was there to tell them not, you know to fight VD, as it was called at the time. As for getting mad because of race prejudice, wait until the war is over. I will come back to the States and join the fight to break down segregation, but let's win the war first. When the war was won, her villa had been taken over by Americans and her house in town by Jean Gabin, who was sharing it with Marlene Dietrich. When I think that German cow is sleeping in my blue satin sheets, she fumed. Later they would share a lighting technician when they were in their 70s. Um, otherwise, the French welcomed her back with open arms, especially after learning about her role in the resistance. 
for which she received the Croix de Guerre and the Rosette de la Résistance. She was made a Chevalier of the Legion of Honor by de Gaulle himself. Though these honors were real and are based on her actual efforts, she wasn't afraid to embellish. Hermann Göring himself, she told one biographer, had suspected her of espionage and tried to poison her at home. In a dramatic confrontation told over several pages with a detailed account of her wardrobe in each scene, <laughs> Göring had tried to force her at gunpoint to consume some deadly soup. Relying on her wits and plotting her escape by communicating in Spanish with her staff, Baker escaped via a laundry chute. I, I don't think that happened. Um, no one's alive, right? No one can tell us. Um, in 1947, she fell for a mostly gay band leader called Joe Bouillon. He, when they got to America, they called him Joe Soup. <laughs> Not poison soup, but it might as well have been. Uh, and even when her friends warned her of his tendencies, she was determined. She said, I need an orchestra, and I'm going to cure him of his habits. Um, Life magazine called their wedding gay but gentil. <laughs> no pun intended. Um, also note the caption. Can you read it? It says, famous Negro songstress puts on clothes and marries a band leader. <laughs> Indeed. Um, re-energized, Josephine reinvented herself with a return to the stage in 1949, turning from a clowning sexpuss into a glamorous star trafficking in poise and elegance. Instead of nudity, endless costume changes, each more ostentatious than the last. She sang songs in French, in English, Spanish, Yiddish. Um, she dressed up as various dead ladies, um, like Mary Stewart, and she sang Ave Maria. Um, in Latin, I guess that's another language she did. Crowds loved it, and by the 1950s, America came calling again. And as promised, she paired her sold-out shows uh, with politics, adding a clause to her contract that said she would not perform for segregated audiences. She also showed up at the trial of the Trenton Six, um, young black men who'd been railroaded into murder confessions, and she refused to play St. Louis, her hometown, because no first-class hotel would offer her a room. In interviews, she noted the hypocrisy of America's wars being fought by blacks. I keep thinking, she said, of our colored men in far-off Korea dying so the American flag can wave with pride, while here in Atlanta or other southern states, their families or friends don't dare enter hotel restaurants or public establishments through the front door. Yet when she called out the Stork Club uh, and gossip columnist Walter Winchell for sliding her because of the color of her skin, it all blew up. The columnist called her the C word, communist. Oh. Right, sorry. <laughs> this, there was a worse C word apparently in the 50s. That was it. Um, so she was basically, she was burned, like no one would touch her anymore. So what would you do? You flee to, any guesses? Which country in the world? Cuba. 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 Not yet. <laughs> <laughs> she will. Not yet. No. Um, Argentina. Evita had just died. <laughs> and he welcomed Josephine and her newfound anti-Americanism, even asking her, actually asking her, to take over Ava's job of managing the hospitals that she was running. It's dizzying to imagine this alternate future in which Josephine Baker became a dictator's 
first lady, uh, but it, it wasn't to be because the, the stage beckoned and France beckoned. She was turning her castle into a theme park of sorts with a wax museum dedicated to her life story, a restaurant, a mini golf course, an exotic bakery run by her sister, a motel, a nightclub, a J-shaped pool, a Madonna statue in her image. Uh, She tried to put it in the church and the priest walked in and was like, oh. So it's outside. Um, There was a coterie of animals, including a gorilla, uh, peacocks, but her life and the park wouldn't be perfect uh, until she's had a family. Starting with adopting a boy in Japan, that's Aiko, uh, one in Korea, both probably born from shameful unions between American soldiers and uh, local women. Pretty soon it became clear that Josephine had larger aims than just starting a family as one child followed another, each from a different country, a rainbow tribe, she called it. When she wasn't allowed to adopt a baby from Israel, she adopted a French boy, renamed him Moses, and fed him only kosher food. (sighs) Two babies who were born, who were found in a grain sack after a massacre in Algeria were renamed Marianne and Brahim, the first Catholic, the second Muslim. She would ultimately adopt 10 boys, two girls. It was a grand experiment in post-racial unity. And uh, anyone with a ticket to her park at Les Milandes, her village of the world, capital of brotherhood, could come see her dream in action and watch her children play. (laughs) Like I said, problematic, right? (laughs) In 1963, when Martin Luther King marched on Washington, she was there too, dressed in her French military uniform, the only female speaker. Her hopeful speech has not been preserved, but her FBI file of over a thousand pages does remain. And how could they not want to keep tabs on her as she was also mingling with the right likes of Fidel. She took her kids um, uh, on vacation to Cuba and they got gifts from um, Castro. Um, She made friends with Tito in Yugoslavia who offered her this island that he had. And so while all this was going on, her marriage with Joe Soup um, (laughs) didn't survive. Uh, And though the park was bringing in thousands of people, the renovations were insanely expensive, and the fact that she was being fleeced fleeced by the locals didn't help. And this meant that she was edging ever, ever closer to bankruptcy. The fact was also that she was impulsive and terrible with money, pawning and re-pawning her jewelry to pay the bills. She made public pleas for help, with her kids, um, at one point being bailed out by none other than Brigitte Bardot. By the late 60s, however, Paris was rioting and Josephine's message of universal brotherhood, as opposed to black power, which she was not into, and her staunch support for de Gaulle, who at that point was, yeah, evil, uh, was starting to be as ridiculous, was starting to be seen as ridiculous. Not to mention that she was finally kicked out of her castle. Now, who would save her, right? She's homeless, she has all these kids, I'm, I'm really taking guesses. It's a famous dead lady, sure to be the subject of her own show. By, by me, I don't, I don't think anybody else would wanna. Princess fucking Grace. <laughs> Grace Kelly. There she is. Uh, she'd been there at the store club that night and she was always, she'd always been on, on um, Josephine's side. 
So she used her connections at the Red Cross to get them to pay for a five-bedroom villa outside of Monaco for Josephine and the kids. With, with, you know, no end date. It was just she could stay there forever. But some of the kids were growing into rather difficult 60s teenagers. The boys wanted to grow their hair long, wear bell bottoms, but she denounced that as too homosexual. One of the boys, Yari from Finland, this is them in very in happier days. Uh, she'd already sent him to live with her ex-husband in Argentina after finding him in the tub with a male friend at age 15. She'd made careful plans for each of her children, complete with professions. None of them were supposed to be artists. Um, and all of them were supposed to return to their home country to spread Josephine's message of universal brotherhood. None would stick to her plan. <laughs> if I made her sound like a terrible mother, her children are actually more ambivalent about this. Um, in a 2009 interview with Spiegel, her eldest son, Aiko, describes his childhood as nice professes admiration for the likes of uh, Angelina Jolie and Madonna. Sure, the paparazzi made life difficult, but when these children grow up, they'll understand. His Finnish brother has also forgiven her. She didn't want us to grow. Maybe she was afraid that we would outgrow her. Broke, her rainbow tribe scattered, her health and sometimes her voice failing her, Josephine was still performing left and right, creatively recycling old costumes, preserving the memory of her legs with layer upon layer of pantyhose. She was planning a big comeback show in Paris. It was going to be full on, a big group of backup dancers, show stairs to walk down. So what if some of it would have to be lip-synced? She was 68. The crowds and critics loved it, but Josephine suffered a cerebral hemorrhage alone in bed after the second show. The adoring front page reviews and pictures spread out all around her. It was April 12th, 1975. The funeral parade was massive, but the kids couldn't all make it to the service at the Madeleine, so Princess Grace organized a second, classier funeral in Monaco, which all but one attended. The burial wouldn't take place until six months later, 50 years to the day until since Josephine had first danced on a Paris stage. Um, so the burial had to be delayed for six months because Grace couldn't decide on a particular gravestone. Meanwhile, Josephine's coffin was parked in a palace garden shed. It's um, a sad ending to our story, a sad ending to Josephine's story. But let's remember her for giving exactly zero fucks. For flaunting conventions by demanding equal pay, for not letting white people define her, for adopting children of all colors, for dreaming big and failing big, for being, in Langston Hughes' words, an ambassadress of beauty, of passion, of life. Thank you. Florian Dowsons on Josephine Baker. If you'd like to learn more about, even more about Josephine, uh, Florian recommends two selections from the many tomes about this great lady. The first is Josephine, the Hungry Heart by Jean-Claude Baker. Uh, he's an unofficially adopted son of Josephine's and quite a character himself. And that's uh, written with Chris Chase. The second book is Josephine Baker and the Rainbow Tribe by Matthew Pratt Guturel. We've got some photos and video clips in the show notes for this episode on our website at deadladyshow.com. So you can see Josephine in action. Our theme song is Little Lily Swing 
by Tritachion, and you can find that on SoundCloud, along with all episodes of the Dead Lady Show podcast. Find us also on social media at Dead Lady Show, or drop us a line to info at deadladiesshow.com. Do share and review us if you can. Thank you. Yes, please do. The Dead Lady Show was founded by Florian Dowsens and Katie Derbyshire. The podcast is created, produced, and edited by me. Thanks to Florian and Katie, and to all of you for joining us. I'm Susan Stone. Support for this episode of the Dead Lady Show podcast comes from the Berliner Senat.